Welcome back to the 24-7 Muscle Podcast. I'm your host, Frieder, as always. And first off, I have to excuse myself again for being quite late with the next episode after the last one. Uh, I always tend to underestimate how much time and energy goes into my current data collection period for my PhD. So unfortunately, I have not been able to cut the episodes recorded already months ago until just now. Please excuse that and I'm working on it to produce episodes on a more regular basis and promise that um, the frequency of publishing episodes will increase over the next months. In that regard, I also decided that I will in the future not put the entire recording online in one go, because as you noticed, the podcast recordings, each episode until now was probably at least one hour, most of the time, one and a half hours long. And I must say also from, from my personal experience, if I see that in a podcast episode is longer than an hour. I usually more hesitant to actually listen in because I know I have to take an hour of dedicated time to to really follow the episode properly. So in the future, I will actually split the episodes. So one recording of one and a half hour will then, as also be done in this example, rather be forty five to fifty minutes, and then be split in two parts. And I, I think that most of your listeners hopefully also appreciate that. But please give me feedback on one, what you think is, is best in this regard. For today's episode, I'm very happy that I can follow up on my recent episode on how light can affect human physiology, where I gave a little monologue as an introduction to the field and to mechanisms involved that today we will be able to follow up with one of the leading experts in that field, which is Dr. Samar Hatta, who was involved in the discovery of uh, the neurons in the eye that set our circadian clock and regulate mood and appetite and other things. Some of you may know Samar Hatta from the Huberman Lab podcast, where he was a guest, I think it was almost a year ago now, so quite some time. The episode was called Timing Your Light, Food and Exercise for Optimal Sleep, Energy and Mood. And I can recommend you to, on the one hand, listen to the previous episode on my podcast, How Light Affects Human Physiology, but also that episode on the Huberman Lab podcast as the current episode, the interview that I'm that will follow in a bit, with Samar Hatta is kind of a follow-up to that Huberman Lab podcast episode, and it's going to give you all the basics before going into this one. And we're going to, yeah, as said, do a little bit uh, follow-up on that Huberman Lab podcast, but uh, we'll have a much greater focus on the light perspective. Some things that I also want to mention before going into the interview is that in retrospect, I again noticed some terms that might be helpful to clarify in advance. And one of these are some very popular names in the field of circadian clocks, which is uh, Jürgen Aschoff and Colin Pittendrick, which are both considered to be the fathers of the biological clock. They lived in the 20th century and in the 60s and 70s, I think they, they established their most well-known findings in, in the field of circadian clocks. And one of the concepts that evolved from these research findings was the phase response curve, also called PRC in short, which is a graphical representation of phase shifts caused by a single disturbance administered in different circadian hours of a free living oscillator. And phase response curves are widely used in the field of circadian clocks, but also neuroscience and even heart physiology. We're going to focus on the perspective of circadian clocks. They quantify the response of an oscillator. So that can, for example, be your core temperature increasing uh, during the first half of the day and then dropping in the evening and being lowest uh, during the night. 
so the to quantify the response of of such a parameter that oscillates over 24 hours to pulse-like perturbations at different times of the 24-hour period and phase response curves thereby provide valuable information on the properties of such oscillators and their synchronization and then, so to give you an, a, a simple example on this uh, that if you take light for example as this will be our focus today and look at for example core temperature or uh, your your wake sleep rhythm over the day that light pulses given in the early period of the day so in the morning hours will contribute to a phase advance of the of your core temperature for the next 24 hour period so your your core temperature may start increasing a little bit earlier next time due to that light pulse given in, in the in the morning hours then you have the the midday hours where light pulses are much more expected by the system by your body and will thereby cause much less of disturbance much lower phase shifts they might also call cause some phase shifts but very minor compared to the morning hours and if you then look at evening hours um, and you would also administer light pulses at that time of the day so after sunset then that would induce a phase delay of your core body temperature in the next 24-hour cycle I hope that is clear. Um, I otherwise also recommend you to just Google phase response curves, PRCs, and uh, to get an, uh, an example of how that is being illustrated. And I think then it gets pretty quickly clear what is meant by this. So this about Colin Pittendrick and Jürgen Aschoff, and they also, especially based on Jürgen Aschoff's research, uh, established two main rules called Ashoff's first and second rule, which is based on their observations of spontaneous free living 24 hour periods of several animal species. And the first rule states that the inherent free running circadian period of approximately 24 hours observed in complete darkness. So if the animals are really caged in complete darkness will shorten for diurnal animals, which would also include us humans and lengthen for nocturnal animals like mice or, ro uh, or rats when they are exposed to constant light. Yeah, so in, in complete darkness, both species, diurnal and nocturnal, should have approximately 24-hour period in terms of their activity, sleep-wake behavior. But if you then expose them to constant light, that will shorten for diurnal animals and lengthen for nocturnal animals. And the effects of this constant light intervention are intensity dependent, meaning that with brighter light, a greater enhancement of these effects will occur. And the second rule of Ashoff states that under constant bright light, the activity time of these animals increases compared to rest time for diurnal animals and decreases for nocturnal animals. So if in the in, in the discussion with Samahata, uh, he will often refer to Ashov or Ashov one, Ashov two. Then keep in mind that these two rules are, are meant, and that is what he is referring to in terms of what the exposure to constant light does to diurnal and nocturnal animals, and also that this these effects are intensity dependent, and that the activity time can also increase depending on whether the animal is diurnal or nocturnal. But now, again, after this little vocabulary training and making sure that you understand what's, what's, what kind of terms will be used in the discussion ahead, we, I think we can start just maybe one little heads up uh, listening to the audio file myself. I noticed, and also during the recording, I noticed that because Sama is actually standing on a so-called standing desk slash standing treadmill thing. So he's able to do some walking while working on his standing desk, doing some exercise in between. Um, and he was standing on that treadmill during the recording. And you will hear once in a while some knocking noises that can be a little bit annoying, but I think uh, we, I managed in, in retrospect with editing 
the audio file that it's uh, not really too disturbing and uh, so just a little excuse here for that and maybe for you uh, to to take away already don't do recordings for podcasts on on stand uh, standing desks slash treadmill desks but now without further ado i would like to go into the episode with sama hatta I will start by by welcoming you Summer on the 24/7 Muscle podcast. Um it's great to have you. I really got interested in your work already way before you were on the Huberman Lab podcast, but I think um the field and especially the people not directly in the field really appreciated you coming on the Huberman Lab podcast and talking with Andrew Huberman on the podcast about how how light can affect mood, learning, depression, but also health overall. And um what I would like to do today is yeah, ask you to start with introducing yourself in terms of where did you study back in the days and how did you get interested in circadian research? Yeah, so I my name is Samer Hattar. I am originally from Jordan. My mother is Lebanese. So I I really got interested in biology in high school when I first heard about the Mendel story, Mendel genetics, and then I wanted to do PhD. So I really directed my whole life toward getting acceptance of PhD in the United States to do my PhD and it wasn't an easy way. I had to go to a small college in north of Jordan called the Yarmouk University because it teaches biology in English. Then I had I wasn't able to get an acceptance in the US so I had to do to medical school at the American University of Beirut and while I was there I got accepted into University of Houston. came to Houston started working on learning and memory with Arnold Deskin but then once i got into circadian rhythms i was blown away by circadian rhythm switch into circadian rhythm and this is where i am right now i could tell you more about the transition from graduate school to faculty but maybe you could talk about this later in the podcast yeah no that's a good idea i would like to focus today with you on the, the so the general theme should be around the question how does light influence human metabolism and also specifically more about metabolism than than learning and cognitive outcomes maybe and i would like you to set the stage in in that regard that you maybe start with explaining how does light actually change over the course of the day with respect to intensity colors and how does that relate to us humans yeah so i think there is a big misconception in in many areas of of science that that the dawn and dusk light is very different actually they are not that different in, in fact only in the middle of the day you get really a pure very high intensity uv and especially in areas close to the equator actually also depends where you are in latitude but the the earth atmosphere depending on where the sun is located can filter blue light and uv light a lot so that's why dawn and dusk look more beautiful because you filter blue light and they become more reddish yellowish warmish color but at noon you get the full spectrum light and in general even at dawn and dusk you don't filter all the uv and blue light you still get a full spectrum light So one thing about the sunlight is that something we cannot really do very well in in the lab is that it is full spectrum and it does have uv and infrared. So we always have to keep this in mind that there may be surprises in the future that uv and infrared are doing something that is unexpected. So we also have to be humble about about our artificial lighting systems. Yeah. So that's a quick explanation of what the sunlight is and that's why I'm always saying stuff without a lot of evidence that I still think sunlight has some effects that we yet to discover but we don't have data for that. Yeah, and maybe we can get into that uh, later when it comes to ultraviolet light and infrared light. So making the connection to the to the circadian clock, could you elaborate on how light actually is able to set the central circadian clock and i mean you made the fundamental discoveries uh, back in the days about that and how does it then not only affect the central circadian clock in the brain but also peripheral clocks like organs as muscle as as the liver and so on as you know yeah this this is something we could spend a whole day talking about it's so complicated and so the circadian field has made a huge advantage depending on which organism you're talking about 
I'm going to limit myself to humans because mice and humans, I think the entrainment is going to be very similar. Just to say that most of our resetting understanding of the circadian oscillator come from Neurospira, Drosophila. A lot of complex uh, entrainment pathway are from um, other organisms like plants. They have a very complex photoreceptive system. So I'm not going to go there. But what is really interesting, which will become interesting for your metabolism interest, is cyanobacteria have set up the light entrainment pathway with energy metabolism. So ATP is the downstream target of light. So there is already a connection, as you can see, between light and ATP, because light is the energy and the photosynthetic component. So we'll talk about that later. But for humans and mammals in general, as, as we're part of mammals, I think we still have very little understanding. So I think the big debate between Ashoff and Pidendrick, whether it's photoentrainment can be explained by the phase response curve alone or that the duration of light stimulation can matter, I still don't think it's completely resolved. And especially for the entrainment of peripheral clock, there is a lot of evidence right now that you could send light information to peripheral clock independent of the circadian pacemaker in the SCM. Mm -hmm. And that already adds a huge component of complexity that we're not yet aware of. I am not completely yet convinced about the non-ocular photoreceptors in mammal, but there is clear evidence that there is a photo-entrainment of peripheral oscillator from these opsins as well. So we have to be, again, humble about the fact that we think we understand how circadian photo-entrainment occurs. And we measure very, very small outcomes, melatonin, sleep-wake, but we don't look, as you said, at all the peripheral clock, about the phase relation between the peripheral clock. So I think that's very important for us to talk about. So one of the possibly best ways to think of how the peripheral clocks are adjusted is, is work from Uli Schibler showing that you know, the SCN controls the peripheral clock, but the peripheral clocks also have their own clock that is controlled independently of the SCN. And it's the interaction between the signals from the SCN and uh, the input to these peripheral clock from the environment and from the intrinsic clock that will determine the phase relationship between these different oscillators. And that's, that's the simplest level I could explain it. I'll be happy to expand on that more if, if you wish. Yeah, so talking in terms of, of simple physiology, so thinking of light coming into the eye and um, influencing the central clock in the brain, how does the light information get transferred into the rest of the body? So what are the clues, the metabolic cues and the physiological cues for the body? You mentioned melatonin as well uh, yeah. already. Of course, uh, hormones like cortisol, but what about uh, sympathetic, parasympathetic uh, so that, neuronal activity? So sympathetic, parasympathetic, but also you have temperature changes that occur. So temperature, sympathetic, parasympathetic, the sympathetic system is really amazingly controlled by, by light. I mean, there is a beautiful paper by Alan Chen's lab showing that light can directly affect the sympathetic system to affect hair growth in mice. And there is really beautiful work by Barbara, I forgot her last name, about horses, showing that if you stimulate the eyes of the horses with blue light, you could actually improve their, their, their hair um, production and, and, and the, the horses. So it's, it's really wonderful stuff about this direct input through the sympathetic system. And, you know, there is a clear evidence also that light can affect heart rate through the sympathetic system. And the pathway, it could be very simple. It could be through the same pathway that affect melatonin because uh, the sympathetic system is activated by the same ganglia that eventually inputs on the melatonin system, the superior cervical ganglia. So it's not that hard to imagine the pathway requiring the same SCN, IML, the SCG pathway that, that is used to, to connect to the pineal, also connecting to the sympathetic system. Yeah, and maybe to, to add a little bit on that, what, what we do in our lab in that regard is that we also check uh, for skin temperature in response to light exposure. And well, there, uh, people are always surprised how that actually modifies skin temperature. So thinking of uh, light uh, during the day, but also then artificial light during the evening, we, we clearly see that as soon as we have the bright light stimulus, pretty much also more independent of daytime, that um, the skin temperature drops, especially in, in the distal area. So looking at hand temperature and feet temperature. Published? Sorry, I, I missed that. Is that published? Yeah, that is published. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So 
this is so cool. I need to read this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly uh, Christian Kajochen's group from, oh, from Basel. They, yeah. they do a lot of work on this and healthy people. And we have also now some data out in, in yeah. older pre-diabetic uh, individuals. And we are really excited about that because, of course, when you think of skin temperature, and especially in the distal regions, hand and feet, for the hands and feet to warm up, you need vasodilation to occur, of course. So and vasodilation is also a mechanism by which the blood pressure drops. When right. you think of blood pressure being higher during the day, being lower right. during the night, that's quite an interesting tool to work around then to possibly lower your risk to develop cardiovascular diseases when you keep the natural light schedule. Yeah, I mean, and, and this again just points to the fact that it's something, I don't know if you've heard me railing against the word masking, because to consider light effect as masking the circadian clock, you're really underplaying this direct effect of light on, as you said, vasodilation, pressure, uh, temperature, these are not masking. These are physiological effects that light is producing independent yeah. of sleep and circadian rhythms. So I think the word masking has to be completely retired because it's just really an underestimation of yeah. the importance of direct light effect on our behavior in general. Okay. D did we then mention all the signals, the most important ones? So we mentioned melatonin, cortisol, we mentioned the sympathetic, parasympathetic system, core temperature by but possibly indirectly also uh, sympathetic uh, nervous activity. Did we miss anything? Well, the only one I would say, which we still don't know a lot, there is also direct input to other brain regions that release very important peptides or hormones or components. Like, for example, the supraoptic nucleus is one area, SON, that is, I'm very interested in, has, has a vasopressin and oxytocin. So I think areas like that we need to start thinking about. Also, the preoptic area itself uh, can also regulate a lot of these components, REM, non-REM temperature. So I think we, we, we also have to go beyond the SCN um, so the SCN is not the only factor that we have to consider. It's possibly the major factor, but it's not the only factor. Yeah, okay. I, I think that that's really important, actually, to, to be humble about possible mechanisms that we are completely missing at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just heard Dan Kirschsteiner from uh, Washington University uh, putting together all the brain regions that receive light input in the mouse for both image, object tracking, and non-image system. And I was blown away, 53 different brain regions. Wow. Yeah. 53. That's, a, that's supposedly an animal that people thought is, hates light, is nocturnal, doesn't see. Imagine like for somebody like humans or, or diurnal animals. So I think it's just remarkable how much, I mean, the eye is part of our brain, but it's remarkable how much the eye is connected to our brain. No, that, that, that's really exciting data. I have to look into that as well. So thinking of the, you mentioned the phase response curve uh, for human light exposure and its effects on the circadian systems. I think you also discussed that in quite detail in the Huberman Lab podcast. So what times of the day are, are crucial for us humans to be exposed to light to set the circadian system? And I think uh, to uh, let me do a kind of hopefully fair summary of what you said on the Huberman Lab podcast was that we should try to aim for getting at least 15, maybe up to 45 minutes of morning sunlight to set the circadian clock get as much as further daytime light as you safely can. And with safely, I mean, in terms of not burning and not getting sunburned. And of course, avoid bright light after sunset and try to dim down your artificial home lighting as much as you can. Also, again, in a safe manner to not oversee obstacles and, and trip possibly, especially for the older population. Is that correct or should we add anything? Honestly, for an average simple way to do it that is possibly going to work for most people, right? Yeah. But if you want the details of it, again, we've been, we've been talking about this earlier, but the difference between ash of continuous light exposure versus just a pulses of light, like I suggested in the Huberman podcast, there, I would still think that there is benefit of getting a prolonged light stimulation in the day. So it's important for you not to just get 15 minutes of light and then go in complete darkness. Uh, yeah. That's a post-depression, I think, eventually. So I, I 
I suggest that there are more components to that, that, you know, like if I show you my office, I always have an open window. If the sun is not coming in and heating the room and making it hard for me to see, the windows are fully open in the day. I'm getting sunlight, even though I'm in my office. And usually glass doesn't, you know, doesn't eliminate, like clear glass doesn't eliminate much uh, wavelength of light anyway. So you're getting pretty good light to allow you to have circadian photo entrainment and the, the prolonged effect of light. So in general, I would say yes, it's correct. But in general, that's what happens in, in Northern Europe in the winter that they may get some bright light in the day at some point, but it's still, they don't get enough. They don't get enough prolonged treatment and that's not going to be sufficient at some yeah, and, and what about then thinking of this phase response curve? And I think in, in, in many outcomes of the phase response curve, there's kind of this dead zone where light is less effective. And I guess that was mostly at midday, right? So, so it's interesting in all the studies that I've said in humans, and you possibly know this more than me, uh, since you've known the human literature, is that there is not a clear dead zone in the human PRC. Again, I didn't want to complicate this. It's, it's weaker phase shift, but there is no, and I think part of the issue here is that the way we do the PRC in humans, we dissociate sleep and temperature anyway. So there may be more responsiveness to the circadian system. That's why I think the PRC has this problem. And that's why I think we need to think of both PRC and ASHOF. Because I feel like in, in, in mice, for example, the PRC, you have to put the animal seven days in constant darkness, at least for ash of one. And that really sensitizes the retina and changes oh, yeah. the animal physiology. So I think we, you know, we have, again, to be humble about how much we're doing to get these responses and how artificial they are. But in general, they explain circadian photo entrainment pretty well for the most part. So if we have that settled, um, something that I always notice, and you already touched upon that in the beginning, is that most of the researchers really focus, and you admitted that yourself as well just a few minutes ago, that it's mostly focused on, on, visible spect on the visible spectrum of light. What do we actually know? Um, because... I, I remember being being taught in, in chrono school that clocks initially, like millions, billions of years ago, um, evolved to protect cells from ultraviolet light. So that was the main reason probably initially for why clocks evolved. So can we elaborate a little bit on that? So what does what's the role of ultraviolet and infrared light for the circadian clock? So right now, the evidence for specific effect independent of opsense for either infrared. Infrared would be very hard to imagine activating opsins because if you have an opsin that is responding to infrared, it's going to be very labile and the opsin is not going to be attached. Uh, but UV light, on the other hand, I mean, it activates most of the opsins. So it's hard to eliminate the role of UV light on other aspects versus the opsin. So the data right now is not very clear um, what, what these will do or if they'll do anything but it is interesting that in plants, for example, and the beauty about our field is that you listen, you go to the meetings and you listen to talks from other organisms, they have opsins that protect from UV light, that these opsins are actually protecting the plants who are sitting in the light from the damaging effect of UV light. So, I mean, there are ways that the organism can deal with the damaging effect of light. For animals, they could have hide, they could have been nocturnal. I'm not convinced the hypothesis really is correct anymore, to be honest, escape from light. It just doesn't seem, because if you look at how many animals change their niche behavior, depending if they are in the lab or in the wild, it seems that niche determination is very labile and it's, it's part of the phase relation between the light and dark. That's why whenever I give talks, I try to, feel for people who are more truly more night people like they like to sleep longer because i think most of us are morning people but our environment changes us right so i totally love ken wright's experiment if you take people to the wild most of us will advance their sleep so i believe that but i think there is a population there is a, a, a pretty significant population that are really their phase relation is best in a delayed fashion with the light dark cycle and that's why i'm always very careful of saying that 
you have to wake up at five or six. I'm just saying, when you wake up, get the light information. Use dawn or dusk. I, I don't want to complicate it to people, but you know, don't. I mean, you could entrain the animals at light dusk, but you could entrain the animals with one light at sorry at, at dawn and also with one light at dusk. We just need the animals need to get a single light pulse to know where it is in the day again you give the average and you try to to help people with all the details but if you start going into the details we still have a lot we don't understand to be honest yeah and also thinking of companies like maybe philips for example of course trying to to develop light sources that mimic what sunlight is doing yes and of course it, it will be very difficult to mimic the uv part of that Right. You, maybe you can mimic the, the color spectrum. That, that, that's something I think that they can manage at some point or they are, are already managing that. I mean, the problem is also energy expenditure and heat production, like with infrared. So we could use two tracks. My way of thinking is let people still go outside when they can. And it's not it's not too hard. But if you somehow mimic as much as you can the light in the offices as to that the sunlight, that's surely going to have a major impact as well. So I think we don't have to imagine that we have to replace the outside, but we could complement. I, I think of it as a complementary approach. Yeah, no, that's that's again really good to keep in mind that uh, for people that want to play around with their light exposure and don't take sunlight into the equation, I think that's gonna gonna yeah, be difficult I, in the long term. Like for me, because I have such a huge window, I never put the light in my office on. Yeah, then no need. So this is all <laughs> from the. That's this is luxury, wonderful. yeah. Yeah, natural. <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful, right? And I'm standing on, on my standing treadmill and I'm looking outside and I'm literally getting light information the whole day. So it's just, you know, it just, it cannot be better, you know. Yeah, we are, we are actually currently um, doing a study in type 2 diabetes where we put patients in an office environment, Monday to Friday, and in a crossover design, have them spending Monday to Friday and only artificial light, only 300 looks all day with dim light in the evening. Um, and then compare that to sitting close to the window, natural light during the day. Oh, wonderful. Oh, I would I love to. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, there is this beautiful uh, study that I don't know her name. I forgot her German name in Harvard, but she, she did like this epidemiological studies of hospital and she found that patients that were more east facing they get all the sunlight in the they had much better outcome i mean it's just it's i mean okay it's a, it's a coin it's an epidemiological study it's, but it's just remarkable the data was just mind-boggling it's just unbelievable right that, that's crazy that's something that i have to look into because i mean if you then sit with your research group in a tower that is like square shaped then yeah you might get an advance of sitting in that specific corner of the building <laughs> that's right <laughs> that <is not> teaching, right? <laughs> well that's that's really cool i keep that yeah, in mind i think so absolutely yeah and you also already mentioned uh, sunrise and sunset light. And I'm, I'm really interested in that personally, because you also mentioned, of course, people are somehow chasing sunsets and also sunrises. They, they love just the experience of, of the color, I guess. And something that I personally noted in the animal world, because I'm not into too much into animal research, but if you think of specific insect species for example they are pretty much only active in sunlight and sunset light is is, is that true and what what do you know about this I connection most of the insects i've known and I, I haven't studied this very well i feel that they are active either on sun sunrise and sunset and and partly some of beautiful work by bambus has shown that partly when it's very hot the insect will desiccate because of the uv and they have to be sleeping or hiding from and in depending on the latitudes when the sun is not as high in the horizon and you're always getting protection these insects can be active the whole day so it it, it there is no doubt there is benefit about filtering and again, the escape from UV light, there is no doubt that there's benefit about filtering the UV light by the environment. The question is, which I think is very interesting, and I, I don't know the answer to, is are sunset and sunrise doing the same thing? And I could tell you that we just published a paper recently that blew my mind. And we sent it to Neuron, and I just have to say this, send it out to review, and it just, I was so angry, but it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> it's just crazy that we found that the 
circuit in the retina that detects light to dark transition, which is called the off pathway, doesn't contribute at all to circadian photoentrainment. So okay. imagine the retina has 50% of its circuit dedicated to telling when is light to dark happening. And somehow the circadian system that cares about light to dark transition and dark to light transition doesn't use this system at all. So it just occurred to me that all our circadian system cares, and now I could say it without any fear, before I used to be scared saying it, all it cares about is the presence of light. It's all about the detection of dark to light transitions. So when you're at dusk, you're measuring this light at, at night, which has different color, the same way you're measuring it in the day. I think that in the dawn, I think why the dawn works better, because when you're sleeping and you're waking up in the morning, your system is much more sensitive to light because you're in the dark, your whole system is ready to respond to light. So it has a bigger impact. But I think if you have a way to resensitize your system, that's possibly would do wonders to you as well. And there is no evidence for that. I'm just speculating because at dusk, by the time you pass through the whole day, your, your system is not as sensitive, especially if, it, if you had bright light in the day. But I have to tell you one thing that I'm very careful about with our data on depression. In rodents, which they don't have color vision, color is... is you know, they, they don't have tri, uh, trichromatic color vision. You know, their visual system is much simpler than us. The non-image system, melanopsin, is absolutely required for depression. But for humans, I, I could see that the aestheticness of the dawn and dusk can improve your mood. I mean, I don't see this as a... I mean, honestly, that requires the prefrontal cortex. You're consciously aware of the beauty. So I'm always careful uh, to say that, you know, mouse are going to be exactly like us, that, you know, when you go and see beautiful stuff, it's going to have a major impact on your mood. I think there is just simply no doubt. So that's why I try to tell people for humans, you also want to think about the image forming system because we are very visual animals. And when people tell me, yeah, I wanna wear glasses that take certain color off a certain color out, I worry a little bit because your whole perception of the world is gonna change. And you're not, you know, you're not supposed to be seeing in, color, in yellow, you know, it's not good, you know? So I think this worries me a little bit about light blocking. You know, there's, there's this new fad about, uh, you know, wavelength blocking glasses. I think that it's a great idea. Honestly, I'm not going to debate that it wasn't a great idea, but I just think that we forgot as circadian people that image formation plays a big role in a human's life as well. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the glasses, I think then we go right into that um, before going into the, to the other questions. So thinking of glasses that block out certain wavelengths, I mean, on the one hand, you have glasses that are really popular these days because uh, opticians just basically want with the idea to protect your eyes from staring at screens all day they basically cut out just a few nanometers of of the visible light which is around the blue colors which are then called blue black blocking lenses but on the other hand you also have these glasses that basically make you look like arnold schwarzenegger and the, the, the terminator with uh, yellow uh, uh, red I'm, lenses i'm so happy you mentioned this honestly yeah. The glasses that don't block the whole thing and don't change the environment, I don't have a problem with that. And thank you for making that 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 distinction because I was only talking about the glasses that change the visual scene. And so I'm so happy you mentioned that. That's very important to mention to the to the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I mean these. No worries. These glasses are. I mean, you are also a big soccer fan. I remember. Edgar Davids, the Dutch player that played yes. for Juventus Turin, he, he was yes. wearing these yellow glasses to oh, yes. protect himself from, from an eye disease, I think, uh, glaucoma he had. Right now in, in, in the Dutch team as well with yeah, Van Gaal. Yeah. But, but I, I have to say one thing that is really interesting to me that I would mention before we go into the blocking glasses, but I think sometimes people overuse glasses and especially overuse very dark glasses. Like when you're going up to work really early in the morning. The sun is barely on the horizon. Most of the UV light is filtered. There is not much intensity. And you're wearing these really dark glasses. I mean, they're not blocking a single wavelength. They are blocking a lot of light. And I'm thinking to myself, you're literally shooting yourself in the foot 
because now you, you really don't need these glasses, but at the same time, you're blocking the beneficial effect of sunlight. So there is also, we need people to start thinking, yes, at noon, when you're going out, you'll wear dark glasses. Yeah, it's so bright, it's not going to matter. But like when you're in the morning, when you're at dusk, you really don't need them that much. You know, they, yeah. it's just, just get that beautiful light because it's filtered, it's beautiful, it's, it's enjoyable, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and whenever friends of mine come back from the optician telling me, oh, they now have a, a blue blocking filter in their normal lenses and uh, expect me to be excited because they heard from me that uh, blocking blue light is, is good for them on a, on a very uh, yeah, <laughs> basic know? level. And then I, I tell them, no, <laughs> no, no, you did, exactly, you did exactly the wrong thing. <laughs> We need blue light in the day. We need yeah. as much of that as possible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's where a good thing can get bad. Or I've, I've seen websites where they say, oh, we're going to give you this calming blue light while you're sleeping. I'm like, calming blue light? <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't get it. How that could get out of hands. For yeah. for me personally, because I'm I'm actually a big fan of using the, the red glasses um, in situations where I'm not co in control of my environmental light in the evening, because, um, for example, if I sleep in a hotel, if I um, if I'm traveling and on the train, for so, example, so that's, that's really I'm so happy we're talking about this because I was going to mention this. So it's really interesting. Maybe it's because of the redness of dawn and dusk. That red glasses don't seem to be doing as much. Maybe they also because they still activate the green and blue uh, options as well. And the blue still can compare the two. I don't know what it is about red, but red doesn't do the same effect as seeing the word in yellow when you like remove the whole blue. So I have no problem with red glasses. Red glasses have been used in, a, I mean, red lights have not caused a lot of problems in, in general, especially dim red lights. So I actually like your idea and I will change that if you wear red glasses at night in areas where you don't have control of the light, that may be actually a very good idea. It's not just <laughs> taking a wavelength, it's taking the whole shorter wavelength altogether. Exactly. Yeah. And unfortunately, I have to think of why this is not as big of a problem. There could be some emotional effect of, you know, yellow with sickness. You know, people talked about, you know, yellow in induces sickness feeling in humans because when people are sick, their, their faces get less blood and less, you know. So I don't know. I don't know about all these hypotheses I need to read more about, but but it's it, it's it's for sure that red, if you're just seeing in red, is not as detrimental as if you're just blocking one wavelength. And that's something I need to think about more. Yeah. And um, so when, when I'm wearing these red glasses, for example, I mean, I, I personally feel that I get pretty sleepy with them. I also use them when I'm in the lab and we are doing these night shift studies as well. So for myself to better fall asleep while still pipetting and pretty bright light, I'm, I'm at some point wearing the glasses and it helps me to, to suffer less from, from, the, from the shift work at the, at the end of the week. Thanks to me, to be honest, 100%. Yeah. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind, and I know I'm going to make a lot of people angry about this, there is no doubt that at least long wavelength cones do not contribute a lot to non-image systems. Now, yeah. we could talk about the short wavelength cones. There's still some, but for sure, long wavelength cones, their contribution to non-image system is possibly as weak as the off pathway. If, if, you know, maybe, you know, just it's, they, they really contribute very little to the non-image system. Yeah. So, so your, your indication that this really doesn't do much to you. I mean, they are really filling the fovea. They are great for vision, color vision, for high contrast vision, but I don't think they contribute a lot for non-image system. I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. Although and, people will not be happy with that sometimes. <laughs> and of, of course, I, I highly disencourage people to wear them, for example, when driving their car or something, because it definitely messes uh, with light perception, with uh, warm signals and everything. So that's not a good idea. But I mean, as long as you are not actively participating in traffic and yeah. uh, you're doing something where, where the color information is not crucial, 
I think it's a great tool to use to facilitate sleep in the evening when you are not, as I said, in control. You don't have control and you don't have to do high-level, very important stuff that you need full alertness. I could see why this could be beneficial. I honestly could. I would change my mind about that. I was very against it, as you noticed in the Huberman podcast. Yes. yeah. I, I, the red, the red light, the red glasses. I don't see a huge detrimental effect if you're not doing high level yeah. um, tasks. And maybe also good to add, and that would also be a question whether you know whether there's data on that. So if we would compare wearing such glasses to still being in complete darkness, I guess the darkness will still be much more effective in making you sleepy. Or what? What do you think on that? that is- that is a really wonderful question, and I honestly will not be able to answer. I, I think this is one of the questions that is possibly the least talked about and least understood, I believe. So I think part of my problem with putting people in total darkness is that, again, when you put any eye in total darkness, you're super sensitizing it because all the opsins are going to bind to the rhodopsin, conopsins, and melanopsin, and the retina is going to be so sensitive to any presence of light. So if you do total darkness and you're not exposed to light, you shouldn't be a problem. But if you do total darkness, then any escaping light is going to cause a huge effect on you. So, so it'll be great if you don't get exposed to light, but now you're super sensitive to light. The nice thing about being in a dimmer light is that your adaptation system is going to be much lower because you have light and your system is functioning, so you're not as deep as sensitized as complete darkness. So now if you get some light in the environment, it's not going to cause the same impact as if you're in constant darkness. And add to that that the sensitivity of the circadian non-image system is much less than the sensitivity of the image-forming pathway. You could imagine a situation where you could keep light quite comfortably for humans without affecting their clock. So to me, it seems really easy to say dim light versus darkness, I would go with dim light. That's easy. Now, your question is very interesting. What would happen if you only do red light? So red light, you're sensitizing the shorter wavelength system, but you're not sensitizing. The red light would be completely light adapted because your light-sensitive pigments are going to be activated. So what happens if you then remove the glasses and you get a full-spectrum light? I can't tell you what, what would be the effect. It's interesting. I have to think more about it. One area of interest that I find that there seem to be, and, and this is beautiful work by Michael Doe and others, that the red light can change the state of the melanopsin photopigment, but also that maybe red cones can either sensitize or modulate the responses of the melanopsin system. So there could be something yet to be understood about what would happen then. But from darkness to dim light is very easy to understand. You adding the red light component makes it more complicated. I hope I made myself clear. I know it's complex. Yeah, maybe also to just add one more example, how we use that in our studies is that we don't have super, we have a fancy lab, but not that fancy that we can actually, for example, change the light on the toilets within our facilities. So one way that we try to still maintain dim conditions in the study that I just mentioned before is to give participants the, the red glasses Send, send them to the toilet and and hope that that will would mimic the the dim light that they That's are for sure is gonna help absolutely yeah. is gonna be very helpful so i i would agree with that if that as is as simple as simple as this just to prevent you know the the bright light from the toilet which in complete darkness it would be disaster right i mean imagine exactly. if complete darkness you go to the toilet and put bright lights now you're gonna get this alerting signal that is going to really mess up your system. So that's what I worry about. In a way, to be honest, complete darkness is problematic also mentally for people. I mean, we we really don't like to be in complete darkness, right? It's not something that is very fun to, to, to people. So. Totally. Yeah, great. Good that we uh, clarified that on the, on the blue blocking glasses. I'm happy about that because I also noticed in the discussion with Andrew Huberman that uh, you were kind of blocking that question a little bit. 
And yeah. I, I thought, okay, we we basically have to distinguish that a little bit more between. Well, I would say I would say three things. I think blocking a single wavelength, keeping yeah. weird color, is not a good idea. For sure, blocking blue light in the day, unless you're really under very sun and you have a clear, serious retinal damage, doesn't make sense at all to me. It, it's really people are not getting enough daylight anyway. So giving them more blue light blocking is, is counterintuitive. And to me, the third thing that we just to make it, there are simpler way of dimming the light than going through all these extra tools that you need. All you have to do is just do the test at, at, at home. I, I say, just do the test yourself, switch off more light, take off more bulbs and see after five minutes, how much you do, can tell the difference. The, the room is going to be very similar to you because you're just really stimulating your light, adapting yourself so much. You're stimulating the system so much that you're not aware of how much your light adapted at night. Yeah, I, I really love that advice because I, I actually also use that myself when my wife and I, we are watching Netflix in the evening and then we notice the TV is quite bright as soon as the, the sun has set. And then, I mean, it's pretty easy to, to dim the light of your TV as well. And in, in the first minute you think, uh, I'm not going to watch my it. favorite TV show in, in that light. It's going to suck. But if you give it a five or 10 minutes, you're not going to notice anymore that you dim down the lights. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice here. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the interview with Sama Hatar. In the second part of the interview, we're going to discuss the phenomenon of extraocular circadian photoentrainment which basically means whether light can entrain circadian rhythms independent of the light coming into the eye. So maybe via sensors in the skin and other organs of the body. That's something that we're going to look into whether that is possible. Uh, I'm going to ask for the opinion of Summer on this topic. And we're also going to discuss in more detail about how the seasonal changes in light over the year can have an influence on human metabolism and mood and so on. And with that, I'm going to close this episode. And as always, feel free to send me a message via Twitter or via the homepage 247muscle.com about any things you would like to discuss further or have suggestions on how to improve the podcast, suggestions on who to invite on the podcast. That will always be appreciated. Thank you.